everyone. This is Jermaine Fowler with the Humanity Archive. And today's episode is brought to you by my very own Patreon page. If you go to patreon.com backslash the Humanity Archive, what are you going to get? Well, you're going to get all kinds of extra bonus content. You're going to get study guides to take deep dives into what I talk about here on the podcast. You're going to get Yes, bonus episodes. If you can't get enough of the show, I'm going to put some extra episodes there in the Patreon community. You're also going to get live history chats, engagement with me where I'm asking critical questions about history and making you think. And you're going to get all different types of content that you can't get anywhere else. So make sure you go to patreon.com backslash the humanity archive. That's patreon.com backslash the humanity archive to support the show now this is another one of my two-part series this time it's part two of the haitian revolution podcast so if you like your stories from the beginning please go back and listen to part one where i set the grand stage for this revolution including the history of slavery in the french colony of saint domingue or modern day haiti when in 1791, after a clandestine voodoo ceremony shrouded in secrecy, some 2,000 slaves, including Duty Bookman and Cecile Fatiman, rose up and burned their master's plantations to the last piece of wooden timber. This is where we started in part one. And it is a story that scholar Carolyn Fick says so well when she sums up the first part of the Haitian Revolution when she says, quote, During those first weeks of revolution, the slaves destroyed the whites and their property with much the same ruthlessness and cruelty that they had suffered for so many years at the hands of their masters. The scenes of horror and bloodshed on the plantations as whites hopelessly tried to defend themselves or, at best, to flee from the unleashed terror and rage of their former slaves were only too reminiscent of the brutality that the slaves themselves had endured under the plantation's regime. Yet as atrocious as they were, these acts of vengeance were surprisingly moderate. In the opinion of one of the best-known historians of the revolution, Compared with the cold-blooded, grotesque savagery and sadistically calculated torture committed by their oppressors throughout the past, these were impassioned acts of revenge, of retribution, and were relatively short-lived. Unquote. However long or short-lived the vengeance of the Haitian revolutionaries, that vengeance was alive. No longer would they live in sorrow and wallow in the misery of enslavement. And it reminds me of William Shakespeare when he said, Oft have I heard that grief softens the mind and makes it fearful and degenerate. Think therefore on revenge and cease to weep. The enslaved people or formerly enslaved people of the island of Haiti, then St. Domingue, they were ceasing to weep and focusing their minds on vengeance and revenge. And if this vengeance was able to be checked, it was due in part to the leadership of Toussaint Louverture. You see, Toussaint was someone who was disposed to protect his enemies, to practice the rules of war, to shun unnecessary cruelty and retaliation and revenge that did not further the goal. And the goal of the Haitian Revolution in his eyes was the black liberation of all enslaved people on the island and recognition of Haiti on a global and political and economic scale. With fantastic courage, acumen, and moral fortitude, Toussaint compelled the formerly enslaved people to rise up and wield their power against the most formidable foreign governments and militaries in the world. France, Britain, Spain, and anyone else who sought to oppress them. He rallied them to look beyond just vengeance, but toward a greater goal of black freedom and economic power. Black American freedom owes a debt of gratitude to the sons and daughters of the Haitian Revolution in Tucson, Louisville, the war they once shattered the ideal of the docile slave and formed the first independent black republic. It was 
the only successful military slave revolt in recorded history. So then we have to ask ourselves, why then do we have this historical amnesia when it comes to talking about Haiti and its revolution? Because it's curious, as this was one of the most significant events in modern history. Every free black soul in the Western world owes a debt of gratitude for when Haiti freed its own sons and daughters from the vicious enslavement. They accelerated freedom for those black sons and daughters all over the world. By striking a blow to slavery in Haiti, they had struck a blow to slavery everywhere. The Haitian Revolution would be successful, but Toussaint would not be able to live to see the successful end to what he started. And that is what's true of many movements and revolutions, is that more often than not, they're marathons rather than sprints, and they can last for decade upon decade. So Toussaint would die instead of being able to see the revolution completed. After opening and clearing the way to freedom, he was betrayed and captured. The Emperor Napoleon would win the day by throwing Toussaint in a damp jail cell deep in the French mountains, but Napoleon would not win his bid to make the Haitian slaves again. The taste of freedom was just too sweet. Toussaint's followers would finish what he started, winning the war and putting an end to slavery forever in Haiti in 1804. This is their story. This is their struggle. This is the story of Toussaint Louverture, part two of the Haitian Revolution. Let's get into it. host Jermaine Fowler and today I have a story from history that you've probably never heard before but even if you have you've never heard it in the way that I'm going to tell it this is part two of a two-part series on the story of Tucson Louvator and the Haitian Revolution now you won't hear me quote Wikipedia much on this podcast but in all honesty I could not find Two better paragraphs to sum up the Haitian Revolution so concisely and succinctly for the average listener who may need a refresher or who is unfamiliar with the Haitian Revolution than these couple of paragraphs from Wikipedia. So I'm going to read them. It says, quote, The Haitian Revolution was a successful insurrection by self-liberated slaves against French colonial rule in Saint-Domingue, now the sovereign state of Haiti. The revolt began on the 22nd of August in 1791 and ended in 1804 with the former colony's independence. It involved blacks, mulattoes, French, Spanish, British, and the United States as participants, with the ex-slave Toussaint Louverture emerging as Haiti's most charismatic hero. The revolution was the only slave uprising that led to the founding of a state which was both free from slavery and ruled by non-whites and former captives. It is now widely seen as a defining moment in the history of the Atlantic world. Haiti, at the beginning of the Haitian Revolution in 1791, its effects on the institution of slavery were felt throughout the Americas. The end of French rule and the abolition of slavery in the former colony was followed by a successful defense of the freedoms they won. And with the collaboration of free persons of color, their independence from white Europeans. The revolution represented the largest slave uprising since Spartacus' unsuccessful revolt against the Roman Republic nearly 1900 years earlier and challenged long-held European beliefs about alleged black inferiority and about enslaved persons' ability to achieve and maintain 
now that that puts things in perspective for you, as usual, the Humanity Archive talks about a biography within the larger context of history. And today, that biography is a continuation of the story of Toussaint Louverture. And there's this story that I heard about a young Toussaint that was passed down about him through his son Isaac. And I think it is one of those stories that reveals a lot about his character and how he would become the main leader of this revolution. And the story goes like this. Young Toussaint grew up tending stables. So he was always around horses. So there is this untamed and untrained horse in the stable. And if you know anything about horses, you know that any horse can be quite dangerous. And when you think untamed, you might think uncooperative, unruly, unpredictable. Some of these horses bite and they can kick with the force of like 2,000 pounds per square inch. And just for comparison, it only takes about 50 per square inch to crush a tin Coke can. So you could kind of feel what kind of force we're talking about here. So a horse kick is far from healthy. So young Toussaint tries to learn how to ride one of these horses by jumping on one unsaddled only to be kicked off and in the process he breaks his femur but it was this audacious sense of bravery that would serve him well later in life when he led his soldiers at the head of battle and this formerly enslaved Toussaint some describe him as physically short skinny some might even say he looked sickly but he lacked in physical attractiveness and the physical embodiment of strength he apparently made up for with pure character and force of will. CLR James has a lot to say about Toussaint Louverture. He wrote the definitive book on the Haitian Revolution and Toussaint called The Black Jacobins. And he talks about the rising up of these enslaved people who was able to fight European power after European power after European power. And he gives us a very strong visual of what this revolutionary army might have looked like when he says, quote, If the Republic, Liberty, and Equality gave the army its morale, its center was Toussaint himself. He had the first command in October of 1792. We find him writing more than once that a long experience has taught him the necessity of being himself on the spot. Otherwise, things never go well for him. His presence had that electrifying effect characteristic of great men of action. His men would brave any sort of danger. On one occasion when ammunition had given out, they fought with stones. He lived with the men and charged at their head. If cannon was to be moved, he himself helped. Once getting his hand badly crushed in the process, he shared all their toils and dangers. But he was self-contained, impenetrable, and stern with the habit and manners of a born aristocrat. In one instance, Toussaint writes to some of his officers, and this gives you even more insight into his character and the type of man he was. Toussaint himself says, quote, I have received your letter. I have noted with pleasure the manner in which you have repulsed the enemy, and I have only praised for the way in which you have exterminated him with the courage worthy of good republicans. But I see, citizens, with much pain, that the orders which I have given you three times to move on the territory of our enemies and drive them from it have not been put into execution. If you had condescended to execute the orders which I had sent to you, all the camps would have been destroyed. You have trampled my orders into the dust. Unquote. Wow. What colorful language we get from Toussaint in his letters. And he has countless letters. I wish I could read even more of them, but I try to sprinkle some of them in here just to show you the strength of character, the strength of will, and the execution of the written word that he used in order to move the revolution forward. Some say that the pen is stronger than the sword, and Toussaint equally wielded the pen and the sword. James goes on to say that Toussaint's extraordinary abilities, his silence, the sharpness of his tongue when he spoke, it kept his officers in fear. But this lack of closeness with his officers would come back to haunt him later. Now, in the last podcast, I really built up to the point that we are at now, just giving a background of the horrors of enslavement and the obscenity and the monstrosity of enslavement. 
I talked about the beginnings of the war in 1791, and I talked about the arrival of this grand historic actor, Tucson, arriving on the scene. So as I was studying this story, I wondered, why is this story not taught more? Why is it glossed over in schools? And in America, some people might argue that it's because it's not part of American history. This happened in Haiti, or that it was insignificant. Maybe. But I have a suspicion, and this is just a hunch, but maybe the real reason is because history is written by the victors and those in power. Now, I've been clear about my goal with the Humanity Archive, and it's to balance history by telling the story through the lens of the oppressed and how they broke free from the cages of tyranny. And I don't think when it is traditionally taught, I don't think this history is taught through that lens. How embarrassing as well is it to admit that America recognized Haiti when it was extracting wealth from the enslaved people? It recognizes Haiti in modern times as a case for charity, but very, very rarely in history has America recognized Haiti as an equal. Only the non-slave-holding President John Adams supported Toussaint Louverture when he was semi-autonomous, much to the horror of the slave-holding Thomas Jefferson, who thought what would happen if all these black sailors from Haiti who were coming to trade and exchange commerce spread their revolutionary ideas to the enslaved people of the United States. Why don't we learn this history? How embarrassing would it also be for the Western world to talk about how France extorted Haiti after the country fought for and won its independence in 1804? France comes back to the country with 12 warships armed with 528 cannons. They say, hey, you have to pay for that freedom you won. You, Haiti, owe us, France, 40 billion U.S. dollars. And if you account for inflation, it turns into trillions. You owe us this much money for the money we lost for enslaving you. So we have a land where the slave had to pay reparations to the slaveholder. How ironic, how alien, how absurd. No one wants to talk about this dominating imperialism and its legacy. But here we are at the Humanity Archive in the midst of the story of the Haitian Revolution. And it is here we see these three colonial superpowers vying for control of what they see as a gold mine. And from their perspective, this whole scenario reads like a TV show, like Game of Thrones. You can see it as three noble nations fight for control over the lands of Haiti while this dark enemy rises up after being dormant for centuries. But from the perspective of the oppressed like Toussaint, it would read like this. After the emasculation and degradation and annihilation and abomination, the black people finally rose up to crush their oppressors and finally assert their independence. That's how it would read to the revolutionaries. So everything has a start, and the logical question is, how did this Haitian revolution come to be? We have to remember, the era in which this happened was the age of revolutions, and it may very well have been news of the French Revolution that escalated the long-standing revolts that were already going on in Haiti for centuries. This French Revolution that turned them into a full-scale revolution in Haiti as well. Even the enslaved knew what was going on in France, even if it was in a limited capacity. They knew that the white slaves in France were killing their masters. So they may have wondered, why not kill our masters too? And then you have Toussaint, perceptive as he was, he used this to prod, poke, and stoke up the fires of revolution in Haiti. So as we look at the beginnings of this revolution, we see that all of the black leadership on the island wasn't always on the same page as to what the goals were going to be. There are all these rumors about war and all these ideological differences in the revolutionary leadership. Some of them just wanted to pay. They just wanted to pay for the work. Some of them just wanted to have freedom for themselves and their families. And some just wanted more days off and then others wanted full emancipation. And then it is around this time in 1792 that the revolutionary leadership, including Toussaint, found enough solidarity and agenda to make some major political moves. One of those first moves was for Toussaint and the other leaders to defect to Spain. They started off just as a self-contained revolution. 
But then again, you have all these different superpowers on the island vying for controls. Now remember, it was Spain who was controlling Santo Domingo and France who controlled Saint Domingue and the two countries were at war. So Toussaint, as astute as he was, he saw an ally in Spain along with the other revolutionary leadership of the time. And this is where we see Toussaint really start to put his political skills to use. And this is what set him apart from the other leaders of the revolution and made him the leader of the revolution. At that time, there were two other revolutionary leaders by the name of Jean-Francois. And we're told that he was a very capable leader, but he was illiterate. And then you had Baisal, who by all accounts was just as loyal to a keg of rum as he was to the revolution. So that it's very easy to see how Toussaint who was very sober of mind, sound in character, and who worked very hard to become more and more literate over the years, was able to surpass and outlast these other two leaders. It is his ability to use the sword and the pen that we'll see over and over again that made him such a successful revolutionary because Toussaint not only was swinging swords and firing cannons, he was also sending out pamphlets he was sending out articles he was sending out letters or anything he could write in order to sway public opinion in order to sway opinions in france and anywhere within his sphere of influence so we'll see that Toussaint is able to very cleverly play the musical chairs of allies and we might wonder why did he jump ship to spain well whenever this revolution broke out france put a mind to stopping it. So they said they're going to send about 11,000 soldiers over to finally put an end to the slave revolt in 1792. And the revolutionaries knew they needed allies. So they had already been trading with Spain and contraband. So it was easy for them to integrate their forces into the Spanish army. And the Spanish accepted them with open arms. And we'll see this theme over and over again. The European powers absorbing black revolutionary soldiers into their armies by making promises or offering accoutrements and things to the revolutionaries to get them to come over and fight for them. Fight for us. Fight with us. Let us support you. You support us with your soldiers. We'll support you with ammunition and so on and so forth. So there was a lot of military alliances, a lot of switching sides, and it gets quite complex. So I'm going to try to stick to the key points here. And it's funny to me because in the beginning, when the balance of power was solely with the European powers and all the black people were enslaved, no one was vying to add any black people to their army. Yet now we have this group of well-disciplined black troops who had fought a year of revolutionary war and all these global superpowers, France and Britain and Spain, and even at points the United States are all trying to get a piece of the resources of Haiti not only the wealth, but also the soldiery to fight for their army. Now it is during this time, now we go to the years around 1794 to 1795, and France becomes the first nation to truly abolish slavery. And there were enough revolutionary leaders in France committed to the rights of man, and these are the people who had just beheaded their king in 1793 to abolish the monarchy and trade that government in for a republic. So with that, they begin to court the revolutionaries like, hey, come to our side again, this revolutionary musical chairs, right? Pick your allies. Now, I can imagine someone like Toussaint who really felt himself a son of France as well as a son of the revolution. He took this invitation with open arms and he goes back to support France. He switches sides from Spain to France. Now I'm going to go quickly through this part of the story because there are just so many details and I want to steadily work toward that climax of the story. But these themes are thought provoking considerations about the revolution. No matter the names of the countries in this story that I name, the central and fundamental questions and theme of this fortune song was this looming fact that nations were treacherous. He knew that anyone or any nation had the capacity to promise liberty on one end and re-enslave black people on the other. So there was always this planter class lobbying for support in the French government, dreaming of the old days when they did as they wished to enslave people whenever they 
They dreamed of days that they ran things. They dreamed of the days when they were on top. They dreamed of their immense wealth. And there's one part in his book where historian Laurent Du Bois talks about how in 1797 a planter appealed to the government in France to crush the revolutionaries and reinstate slavery even though a lot of France had been swayed to abolish slavery and this is one of the high points of the revolution but Valblanc did not want any parts of that he said quote the colony was in a shocking state of disorder and under the control of a military government run by ignorant and gross Negroes who were incapable of distinguishing liberty from unrestrained license. They had abandoned agriculture. Their cry was that the country belonged to them and the whites were no longer welcome there. The only solution was to force the ex-slaves to return to the plantations where they had lived before the revolution. Unquote. You always see this theme throughout history that Black people don't know what to do with themselves, so they need white people to show them what to do with themselves, to show them how to work, to show them how not to be idle, to show them how to not be lazy. This, in turn, was the justification for slavery. But Toussaint had another argument. He said, quote, If the slaves of St. Domingue were ignorant... It was former slave owners like the Vaublanc who were to blame. Furthermore, lack of education did not signify an incapacity for moral and political activity. Are only civilized people capable of distinguishing good from evil? Of having notions of charity and justice? The people of St. Domingue had little education, but they did not deserve to be classed apart from the rest of mankind and confused with animals. He insisted that violence in the had been no greater than in metropolitan France. Indeed, if the blacks of St. Domingue were as ignorant and gross as Valblanc proclaimed, they should be excused for their action. Could the same be said of the numerous Frenchmen who, despite the advantages of education and civilization, had committed horrific crimes during this revolution? How could Valblanc gloss over the outrages committed in cold blood by civilized men, like himself, who allowed the lure of gold to suppress the cry of their conscience? He concluded, we know, nevertheless, that whatever their color, only one distinction must exist between them. That of good and evil, unquote. So that was a very condensed history of the beginning of the war. And then we fast forward a bit more and we see in 1795, Toussaint was the highest ranking black man in the entire French army. He was governor general of the island of Haiti, colony of France. Now, I just want to say through this, he benefited from this patriarchal system. The military was one of the only ways for a black man to have upper mobility during this time. And Toussaint took full advantage of that. Yet this connection to this patriarchal system, we will see made Toussaint's vision of freedom not really free for the women who, having little recourse for change, were still forced to be tied to and work the plantations. Even in spite of the fact that Women also fought in the Haitian Revolution, and it's one of the greatest tragedies of history that their stories are hidden. And those women who worked as spies or supported the army or who even picked up the guns to fight will forever go unnamed. Some of their names have come down, like Sunite Bellar, an important figure in the Haitian Revolution. She fought as a sergeant in the army of Toussaint Louverture. She was known for her bravery. We have those like Marie Jean. She was also a soldier during the revolution and countless others who will forever go unnamed and unknown. And remember too, I'm not here to tell the story of a hero so much as to fantasize or fetishize or heroize anyone in history. I go wherever the sources take me and try to tell the whole and always complex truth. And the truth is Toussaint wasn't always clear on his liberation policy. History looks at him as a liberator, and rightfully so, but it wasn't without its difficult choices because when Toussaint, for instance, took over St. Domingo, he left that population enslaved, choosing, as we just noted, to keep women subjugated and subordinated in their roles, choosing to turn a blind eye to some of the atrocities committed by his soldiers for military gain, just to turn around and save face and punish them for it. 
choosing to keep in place forced labor policies even though his name had saint in it Toussaint was no saint he was flawed in essence he ran a military dictatorship though a simple man he was he was beholden to wealth and this plantation economy and what it could do also here's a man who seemed by a lot of accounts to go through what many minorities in any nation go through and this is how to reconcile his blackness with his desire to assimilate within French society with the whites. So we can talk about this conformity where there is a strong desire to assimilate into the dominant culture, but also to obtain elements of your own culture for Toussaint. It was to be accepted into French culture. He had a longing, a very big longing to be accepted with the French and to be equal with the whites. But no matter how much he fought, this would never happen. Now, great leader as he was, Toussaint also began to isolate and alienate his followers because, again, these are enslaved people, formerly enslaved people. And you got to think that they wanted autonomy. They didn't want to go back to a plantation to work with you. You're free. You want to be free to live in town if you want, not be tied to a plantation. You want to be free to... Cultivate your own plot of land. You want to be free to work for yourself. But Toussaint, with his love for France and wanting to keep those diplomatic ties, had former slaves working for their former masters. He used his military law to keep people tied to plantations, gave out punishments for those who left their plantations for extended periods of time, and I'm sure that a lot of the enslaved people were starting to scratch their heads and wonder where revolution began and slavery ended because the military revolution of Tucson started looking a lot like slavery. But mere freedom wasn't enough for Tucson. He wanted equality with the powers of the world. And if he was ambitious, well... Maybe he was justified because Tucson fights and wins. Then he fights again and wins and he fights again and wins again. At one point in 1798, Tucson writes in a triumph, quote, I found the colony dismembered, ruined, sacked, occupied by rebels, the immigrants, the Spanish and the English. I am leaving it peaceful, purged of its external enemies, pacified and advancing toward its restoration. Unquote. Must have felt pretty good for him, I'm sure. But there were more battles yet to fight. And the ones that were fought always took a toll. Remember I told you that military service was the only respite for a former slave. The British had known this. And in the territories they controlled, they armed, made fake freedom promises to, and coerced black people to fight for them. So in this bitter irony, there were black people fighting for the same cause against one another for different armies. But Toussaint was able to beat the British. We're told that when a lot of the soldiers for the invading army saw the regiments of Toussaint's black revolutionaries and saw black people in leadership positions, they defected from the British army and the like. So by 1799, Toussaint had not only led France to victory, but he'd also sent all the French commissioners away, establishing himself as the head of the colony. His self-proclaimed heroism is illustrated by the following statement. Quote, I have been fighting for a long time, and if I must continue, I can. I have had to deal with three nations, and I have defeated all three. Unquote. Yet Toussaint would never be accepted by France, no matter how far-reaching his victories. The biggest fight was one he could never win. And that was the one against racism, because he was a man of honor, who wanted to be respected and treated equally. He would never get that out of all the French. Even then you could see the racism seething. When French traveler Michael Discordales ridiculed the, quote, ignorant black officers. Some wore so many rings their fingers were puffed up from lack of circulation. They also wore earrings like women, unquote. One has to wonder how many other people held this sentiment out of France. And this is where I ask a critical question. How important was race to the story? Some argue that the Haitians could have been any group of people and that we have to look at class struggles. But I would argue that we cannot downplay racism along with the economic oppression and 
these systems of class. Race and class came together in one terrible synergy through this racial caste system. In studying Haitian history, you cannot separate one from the other. The black slave was on the bottom in a position of humiliation and degradation, biologically inferior, indolent, childlike, untrustworthy, unintelligent, lazy, and far better off in the colonies than running savage in Africa. This was the thought. And because of these thoughts, and because of the thoughts of race in the sources, and race as a crux of the class system, we can't escape it. Rounding out this story and coming to the climatic battle where Toussaint is going to fight the French because this peace wouldn't last. But before then, he was about to get into a civil war. For years, France had stoked dissension between Toussaint and his southern ally, Andre Regard, a mulatto general who effectively had set up an autonomous regime in the south because he has his whole layered story and background, but Regard would fail against his bid to oust Toussaint because he put too much trust in the French. Here's a quote. On June 16, 1799, Regard attacked Petit Gove, putting many people to death with a sword. It was from Regal's violence with the sword that the Civil War got its name, the War of Knives, were characterized by gruesome excesses on both sides. Finally, by mid-November, the war centered on Regal's stronghold at Jacamel, defended by Alexander Piton. John Jacques Dessalines was the besieging general for Toussaint. Dessalines was to become the first president, then emperor of free Haiti in 1804. On March 11, 1800, Jacamel fell, virtually ending Regal's resistance. Nonetheless, he hung on to July, finally fleeing to France until he returned as part of Napoleon's invasion force in 1802. Unquote. So after the Civil War, Toussaint as the de facto leader of all of Haiti. Not only that, he storms and marches into San Domingo, takes over the Spanish portion of the island as well. And then he goes about reorganizing the whole of the island of Haiti administratively. He puts efforts into public education. He talks of civic pride and racial equality. And this ex-slave reorganized according to his will. He created courts of law and courts of appeal. He insisted on moral principles. All of these things and law and order all in the course of a year. He turned Haiti into a public state on his own, autonomous, and even creates a constitution. His administrative and governmental skills were impeccable, military skills brilliant. What a mind Toussaint had to not only fight a decade of revolution, but after gaining power to reorganize a whole country administratively. I can't underscore the stellar reputation Toussaint had with all those who came in contact with him. But it is here we begin to see him undone with this belief that it was the responsibility of the people to continue agriculture and stay tied to their plantations. They started to abandon him, applying these strict punishments and decrees to keep people close to a state of enslavement. He began to abandon them, monitoring how much land was used by enslaved people so they couldn't start their own plots. He began to abandon them. Some began to think and fear that he was planning himself on reestablishing slavery. And there were some rumors of that going around. People began to talk and conspire and wonder. Now, at this point in the story, Napoleon had come to power in France. He had overthrown the directory in France and destroyed the Democratic Republic and its anti-slavery principles. And he declares himself consul for life. You restores the status quo of white rule and, and then he turns his attention to French colonies. Now Napoleon was a French military general who crowned himself the first emperor of France so much more is to be said about Napoleon but I always remember this quote from him where he said history is but a set of lies agreed upon. That just always stood out to me. But it was Napoleon who had to figure out what was he going to do about this little island of Haiti. It was causing him so much trouble. And he had these planters who were pulling on his coat and trying to gain his ear in such a way to influence him to reinstate slavery on the island. 
Now, Toussaint, who was always astute, knew peace wouldn't last. He brought 30,000 guns from America. Yes, I said America. And remember earlier I said President John Adams was a trade partner with Haiti for a blip in history, for a brief moment in history, just ever so brief. The United States worked with Haiti hand in hand as a sister nation to go against the European powers. So Toussaint is getting ready for the war with France that he knows is coming. And I'm sure it pained him a lot to be what he would have considered himself to be as a son of France. To know that they were coming for him. And this reminds me of this old truth that you cannot simultaneously devote oneself to two different conflicting responsibilities, pursuits or ideas or people at the same time. And that is Tucson's fatal flaw that is his character flaw in the story is that he always had tried to serve the revolution and serve France at the same time no man can serve two masters ultimately he should have either been loyal to France or been loyal to the revolution and oust France first chance he got since he was trying to serve two masters he alienated many of his followers you'll see they start to defect over and over again and it's here we see Napoleon plots an invasion. People who knew Toussaint try to warn Napoleon like, hey, you might not want to go invade this island. They will never go back to slavery. And this is a futile attempt to regain control of an island that can never be regained control of. They try to warn him to just stay out and try to negotiate some kind of settlement with Haiti. But Napoleon didn't listen. He sends 20,000 veteran troops the largest expedition ever sent from France to crush the revolution. So this just goes to show how valuable this colony was. When Toussaint was standing on the horizon and he sees all these, all these French ships coming, we're told that he says, quote, we shall all perish. All of France has come to destroy us. After a 45-day journey, General Leclerc lands at the harbor in La Cap. And he is made governor general of Haiti and he orders General Christophe, one of Toussaint's generals who commanded a force of 5,000 so soldiers to resign La Cap to French authority. Now Toussaint had tried hard to keep some kind of connection to France to retain some level of loyalty, but when he realized it was time for war, he prepared to fight back indefinitely. And this is in 1802. And General Christophe had been given instruction to set fire to the cap and burn it to the ground. And thus the most devastating war in the entire history of St. Domingue had now begun. Lecrec enters the cap, which is now completely destroyed. And he carries with him a letter from Napoleon requesting Toussaint's surrender. And there's fights and there's battles and... Napoleon keeps throwing troops at St. Domingue, even though they're being devastated by death and disease. Toussaint himself had a pretty sound strategy. Burn everything down to the ground and wait. He says, quote, Do not forget while waiting for the rainy season, which will rid us of our foes, that we have no other resource but destruction and fire. Bear in mind that the soil bathed with our sweat must not furnish our enemies with the smallest sustenance. Tear up their roads with shot. Throw corpses and horses in all the fountains. Burn and annihilate everything in order that those who have come to reduce us to slavery may have before their eyes the image of the hell which they deserve. Unquote. Toussaint's strategy was slash and burn and leave nothing behind for the enemy to persist. Again, there's battles and there's fights. Toussaint's generals, Dessalines and Christophe, fight brilliantly and gallantly, and they have two separate isolated stories that I'm sure I'm going to have to tell at some point to continue this story. But Leclerc is gaining ground. Not easily, though, because, again, there's this yellow fever that's killing off massive amounts of his troops. And Toussaint's only option is to fight and hold out and fight and hold out to the rainy season, which is months away, and hope that the climate will take even more of the soldier's of Leclerc in France by disease and one wonders like what did the revolutionaries think of this yellow fever 
because they had been acclimated to the climate of Haiti and they weren't dying in these massive amounts of numbers from this disease. So maybe they thought it was an act of God coming to help them and strengthen their cause and made them feel more emboldened and empowered in that what they were fighting. I'm sure it had to demoralize those French soldiers who saw all their ranks just dying, coughing, sick in hospitals and just dropping like flies from disease. Leclerc writes Napoleon and says, hey, I need reinforcements. You don't know the situation here. It's untenable. And then not only are they dying from disease, but the revolutionaries are still fighting valiantly. Again, with these guerrilla warfare tactics, they like this strategy where they see units of French and they'll come in sight and they'll pick them off, shooting at them and those soldiers on the outskirts. And then whenever the French go to chase them down, they'll retreat and disappear. And as soon as the French get back in formation, they'll come pick some more off again, back and forth, back and forth. This is how they were fighting. They were throwing stones off cliffs. They were putting obstructions and obstacles in the road. And then when the French would go to move them, then they would pick them off some more. And they fought some major battles too. Dessalines' forces were outnumbered in one instance, 1,500 of his forces versus 12,000 Europeans. But undeterred, Dessalines gives a rousing speech. And then he holds out against two attacks launched by Leclerc. And what one historian says was a brilliant maneuver. But after... 12 years of war, Toussaint's soldiers were getting tired. They started defecting to France. As I said earlier, Christophe was a man who was used to the comforts of life. And he said he was tired of fighting in the field. So he defects. Dessalines deflects. But a lot of people see and know. And we'll find out later. Dessalines had other plans to finish this revolution. He would be the finisher of the revolution. The ending but he had gotten frustrated with Toussaint over the years because he thought that Toussaint should have ended this a long time ago and declared independence a long time ago. And this is what I say where Toussaint was isolating his followers, but would any of us had done any different in the circumstances? I don't know. So with these defections and secret dealings, Toussaint was called and what he thought was this going to be a negotiation for surrender was actually an execution of a warrant for his arrest. When Toussaint was arrested, he says, quote, In overthrowing me, you have cut down in St. Domingue only the trunk of the tree of liberty. It will spring up again from the roots, for they are numerous and deep. So he's taken in a ship, him and his family, and he's thrown into a jail cell deep in the mountains of France. Toussaint says, quote, Arbitrarily arrested without anyone explaining or telling me why. All of my assets seized, my entire family ravished, my papers confiscated and kept from me, shipped out and sent over here, nude like an earthworm with the most atrocious of, of calamities having been spread about me. Is this not to cut a person's legs and then ask him to walk? Is it not to bury a man alive? In this bitterly cold cell in winter, windows obstructed by iron bars, a surgeon walks into Tucson's prison cell and after an examination he sees him without a pulse not breathing heart devoid of movement skin cold and eyes still it was this morning of April 1803 that Toussaint Louis Vuitton, leader of the slave insurrection in French Saint Domingue was found dead in his prison cell in France perhaps Toussaint wanted too much Freedom maybe should have been enough for him. Perhaps he should have traveled the country at lightning speed and assured the laborers that, like the past, he was, was on their side. Maybe his reforms shouldn't have been too harsh. Perhaps he shouldn't have tried to serve two masters and serving to please France and the whites of France and also the black revolutionaries. Perhaps he did nothing wrong according to the rules of war, but his biggest and most egregious crime, the one for which he might have died for without a trial, without recourse, was not for defending himself in war before aspiring to equality with the whites. He himself says, 
that he faced his final fate because he was a black man. But as we round out this story, I want you to remember the indomitable spirit of Louvator and his defiant anti-slavery spirit. And remember his words when he says, but if to reestablish slavery in St. Domingue, then I declare to you it will be an attempt at the impossible. We have known how to face dangers to obtain our liberty. We shall know how to brave death to maintain it. Unquote. Thank you, thank you, thank you for listening to the Humanity Archive podcast. I am your gracious host, Jermaine Fowler, and I am now finished with part two of my podcast on Toussaint Louverture, the Haitian revolutionary. I hope you enjoyed that story where I condensed the history. There's so many details, and I hope that you read the recommended books. I hope that you read the articles. I hope you read the history for yourself so you can see all the details, all the names, all of the battles, all of the thoughts, all of the ideals of revolution. It's profoundly fascinating, infinitely fascinating, and infinitely important. Again, if you want to support the show, go to patreon.com backslash the Humanity Archive. Pledge a donation for as little as $5 a month. You can get bonus content, bonus podcast episodes, bonus history. Stick with me. I have more fascinating stories to tell, more unsilencing of history, more stories that need to be told. Until next time.